Hi there, this is Rami, and welcome back to another episode of the Bonfires of Social Enterprise. I want to give a shout out to our friends in Haiti, France, and Canada. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership and following. Please reach out to us on the website. We'd love to hear what's happening in your communities and maybe even tell your story on our show. So, on this episode, we catch back up with Andy Magel in Denver, Colorado, and the Mile High Workshop. Many of you may remember that Denver is known as the Mile High City, as it's one mile above sea level. There's a vibrant community of social enterprise in Denver, and Andy is leading the way with his amazing makerspace and job creation. Stay tuned at the end for a song from a Detroit artist again. Let's first now see what Luke has for our fun fuel. Hi, this is Luke Trombley, and I'm bringing you the fun fuel for this episode. Mile High works on teaching sewing, woodworking, and laser engraving. Throughout history, every civilization has used wood to create useful and beautiful objects. The ancient Chinese were among the first to begin using wood, making carts, wheels, shelters, toys, and art all of which are still around today. Fast forwarding to 1991, the world's largest wooden dome was built in Marquette, Michigan. The dome has a volume of just over 16 million cubic feet. The dome is still recognized by Guinness World Records as the largest wooden dome in the world. I hope you enjoyed this fun fuel. Now on to the episode. Thanks, Luke. Wooden domes. You just don't think of things like that that are possible without steel and like materials. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Okay, let's jump into the update with Andy on his Mile High Workshop in Colorado. Glad to be back. Uh, I was looking, it's been over a year since we last talked, and man, a lot has happened. Uh, we've moved, we've expanded, we've grown, and so, yeah, happy to, to kind of pick up and if you if you have anything in particular you want to know, let me know, and I'll just kind of give you a quick rundown. But we when we last talked, we were in about eight thousand square feet, and uh, we recently moved to a new building that we're occupying about twelve thousand square feet of, much more industrial space with dock doors and these types of things, higher ceilings for vertical storage, and so much better space for us. And uh, that's been a good move that's allowed us to kind of take on some new projects and grow with some projects. Uh, last time we talked, I think we were doing woodworking and sewing. And I can't remember. I don't think we had quite started up our packaging and fulfillment side of things yet. No, it was uh, more like etching. I think there was a little bit of glass etching starting or just or you were dabbling with it, I think. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, we're yeah. still doing that. Laser okay. etching and cutting. Uh, still kind of a, a, a nice accessory to a lot of the other stuff that we're doing. Um, but we were doing our, the fastest growing thing that we started even since we've talked about last was uh, packaging and fulfillment. And so we do uh, all the fulfillment and shipping for a company called Cora. They're a subscription tampon business actually uh, based in San Francisco. Really great company and really doing a lot of growth. And so we do all their packing and shipping, and we also do the, the same types of services with some local businesses here, a uh, sunglass company and a pillow company. And uh, that's been a really good area for us to provide job opportunities and training. And we're really excited about what's coming with that. And we've got some new stuff come down the pipe too. We're actually just about to launch a new partnership with Coors Tech, which is a ceramics 
side of kind of the Coors family, you know, in Colorado, obviously a, a big family name and the Coors beer is probably pretty well known across the country, but they have a, a manufacturing side of the business, technically a separate business, but uh, ceramics. And they are placing equipment in our shop that we will uh, be trained to operate and manufacture for them. And then we'll use that training as an opportunity to prepare people for jobs at Coors Tech. And so they'll graduate our training module uh, into kind of above entry-level positions at Coors Tech, and that's something that we're very excited about. Hey, Andy, when you uh, – as you moved into this, I think so many entrepreneurs <laughs> want to know how how did you land on kind of starting to move into this packaging and fulfillment and – how are you getting your customers for this? Was it was it somewhat a happy accident or was it intentional? <laughs> we have so many questions that come in about expanding and how to do mm-hmm. that. Would you mind uh, yeah. pop, talking to us about that a little bit? No, that's good. I mean, I think everyone probably has a different approach there. For us, it, I think happy accident is a really excellent way to describe it. Um it's all been very organic for us and, and pretty re- relationship-based. And so, you know, in the last two, two and a half years, we've worked with well over 100 customers. And those have almost entirely all been kind of inbound referral and just kind of natural uh, partnerships that have come along. And we've, we're just getting to the point where we're big enough to where we're going to become intentional about going out and finding those relationships. But it's all been, our growth has come just from, you know, hey, here's a friend, they're starting this thing, they're looking for a partner, do you guys want to try it? And we've just said yes a lot, and uh, it, it certainly hasn't all worked, I can tell you that. Uh, yeah. But what has worked has stuck, and it, it's it's been a really good fit for us. Yeah, and part of it, I just know I, even from our own company here, it's like part of it is how do you price yourself for expansion? I think yeah. um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. I find, and I, I am the numero uno guilty party of this, I will price services or products uh, just over cost a certain profit margin, but I don't have my eye on expansion. And so yeah. I can default to, oh, I just want to give them a good deal. How are you yep. handling that kind of stuff specific to expansion? No, that's very true. I think there's a level of confidence that comes as you exist and do a good job because uh, we've been guilty of the same thing for sure. And, you know, at the first time you take on a job, you're just happy that somebody said yes and that, that yeah. you've been given given this opportunity to, to earn that and to prove yourself. And, you know, when you establish a little bit of a track record and you do a good job, then I think your your confidence grows and your willingness to say, like, okay, now we don't just want to survive and have the opportunity to do something, but we want to grow and we want to create more opportunity. And, so, yeah, I mean, pricing is a critical part of that, and it, it feels like a little bit of a moving target in terms of kind of what that pricing is and how that looks. And, you know, it definitely ebbs and flows with kind of the, the projects because they're, they're all so unique. But, you know, I think we have established ourselves to the point now where we know we can execute, we know we can do a good job, we're going to be a good partner for somebody, and uh, that allows us to have the confidence to price things in a way that will allow us to, to continue growing and fuel that growth. It's such a good word, building up your confidence by doing good, delivering good services. Yeah, 
I mean, I because if we would have charged a premium, if anyone charges a premium on day one and you can't deliver, you know, that's just not going to be a good recipe. Right. It feels false, you know. Right. It's like, right. Yeah. And what do you, I mean, because you're, it sounds like you're still offering services to perhaps a startup entrepreneur, but all the way up to now, like a, a potential client like Coors. I mean, that's extraordinary and so great. Are you still going to offer some of those services to that startup entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we really like having a, a nice mix, you know, because everyone, everyone has different priorities and things that they need. And, you know, our core mission is as a job training program. And so, you know, people come in and they may or may not have skills in the area that they're going to be working in. And so we need kind of a wide range of products so that, you know, somebody on day one can contribute to a project. And then as they grow, the projects that they're working on can kind of grow in skills required as well. And so we love having kind of that mix because it gives us flexibility. And, and you know, that we're a little bit more diversified in that way that, you know, if a, if a small entrepreneur kind of, you know, they start something, if it doesn't work, if it goes away, they're not our only customer. You know, we've got somebody like a Coors or someone on board who we can lean on, you know, for kind of stability of the program. So it's, it, we really like having a, a little bit of both. It, it creates a nice mix and a good dynamic uh, on our production side of things. Yeah, and there's always that uh, the intrigue of the energy of the entrepreneurs too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, level. <laughs> and, and kind of the cross collaboration that can happen there. You know, I mean. There's a lot of fun kind of side projects that have come out of people's interactions and just support that comes in. You know, our customers will meet each other in the shop and, you know, who knows kind of what can come from that relationship in and of itself, which is always really fun. Yeah. Are you noticing a certain type of um, employee is excelling in your program or is it is it all over the board? I guess what I'm really asking is, is there a certain demographic or something that uh, people with barriers to employment or something that's working in Colorado that you're noticing really excels in this environment? Yeah, I mean, the the broad answer is like anybody who, who really wants to take advantage of the opportunity is going to excel. You know, when we look at our numbers and kind of the data behind everything, pretty much anybody who sticks with us and works through the program is going to leave to a good job and they're, they're most likely to be keeping that job after they've left. And so, you know, if somebody wants to, they're going to do well. Um, one of the things that we really like about our model is that uh, we, since we do have different areas, you know, packing and shipping, woodworking, sewing, if somebody comes in and the area they've been hired into really isn't a great fit, we've got the opportunity to shift them around. Uh, so somebody comes in, is working with saws in the wood shop. And it turns out they're just not really a sized person. They can make the shift to, you know, packing and shipping and more kind of general warehouse type work. And that might be a really good fit. And so really, you know, we've got enough flexibility in the type of work that we're doing to where we can typically find something that's going to be a good fit for somebody. Yeah, that's tremendous. I love this idea, too, of the continuum of of skill building onto the employer like you described at Coors Tech. That's pretty cool. I yeah. think there's always this element of providing hope to those who feel like they haven't had a path, 
even if mm-hmm. they might not know exactly how that's going to walk out, just knowing that there's potential paths into um, more development, I think just sometimes knowing that that's available changes a person's mindset and heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's so cool to see somebody come into the sew shop, for example, never touch a sewing machine, then realize that they're actually pretty good at it and that it's a viable career path. You know, we have several cut-and-sew shops in the Denver area, and there's not a lot of training that's happening um, to prepare, you know, potential shops. And so you've know, been able to establish some good relationships there and help support people as they transition into those types of jobs. And when somebody learns that they're good at something that's a viable career path, I mean, there is a, a lot of hope that comes with that for sure. And in Colorado, I know you're you're in the Denver area, but in is it is skilled trade a, a gap like it is in some of the other states? I mean, in Michigan, where we do most of our work, it's it's a huge gap. <laughs> but is it yeah. similar in yeah. in Denver? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's really a nationwide thing. Like you're just seeing this shortage of people who know how to do skilled work with their hands. And so if somebody can come in and if we have the opportunity to teach them how to do that, uh, there's no shortage of opportunities. You know, Denver specifically construction is huge right now. I mean, the city is just blowing up. And so if you can do quality woodworking, um, there's just a, you can kind of pick what version of it you want to do. There's just so much opportunity and all that right now. But, and yeah, so there is a gap and we're, we're really happy to be able to kind of play a role in providing some of the training for that. Oh my gosh, it's huge. It's huge. It's neat where you just said woodworking. Would that include all kinds of things up to, like, I guess, carpentry, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, it's it's all about those basic skills of knowing how to read a tape measure and operate a saw safely and, you know, put things together. And when you learn those basic skills, you can take those anywhere. Uh, so, you know, we make a wide variety of things in the wood shop that require a diverse skill set to be developed and so that when somebody's graduating the goal is that they can kind of look at what's most interesting to them in that field and have at least a base understanding of how to pursue that. Andy, how are you handling um the management of so many people? Well let's back up. How many I guess average folks do you have on the floor at the time or employees do you have average on a day? Yeah, I mean, if everybody shows up, we're pushing somewhere around 20 people right now. Um, And that's not necessarily just folks in the training program. That's kind of the whole thing. So, you know, we've got a team of social workers and shop directors and these kinds of things. And so there's probably 10 to 12 people on the program side of things right now. But as an organization, we've been growing for sure. And so how do you – are you following a model on how to build up sort of oversight and management? Uh, I think this is an interesting um, intersection for social entrepreneurs when you do have, whether you're for-profit or non-profit, where you have some programmatic elements of it where, like you said, you might have some social workers or a life skills going at the same time as real work that needs to happen to turn yeah. your business model oh, yeah. around. I think there's sure. a lot of um, people trying to figure out and most of us are doing it by making mistakes, actually, of how yeah. do you find the right types of oversight when you've got that dual yeah. nature going on. How are you learning about that and 
higher Yeah, I mean, we are. Oversight. some of that is definitely coming through just experience and trial and error. Um, but I think to the degree, you know, the most that we can, we're trying to really lean on other people's experience. And so we've got people kind of in the Denver community who are lending their insights and expertise, you know, maybe from the business world. So kind of mentoring from the business side of things. Um, but then we've also had this really incredible opportunity. I don't remember if this had happened when we had last talked, but we were uh, a member of uh, the Social Innovation Fund portfolio through REDF, which is um, you know an organization based in San Francisco. And that has really opened up a lot of doors for us to access knowledge um, from other organizations who've been around a lot longer than we have. And so we've been able to learn from them as well. So we're kind of trying to kick the brains collectively of the for-profit and the social enterprise kind of non-profit sector and learn from the, the folks who've gone ahead of us. And that's been extremely helpful. And it's really helped us, I think, kind of cheat the growth curve a little bit by yeah. kind of pulling some stuff in that's maybe a little bit beyond our, our years, which has been very, very valuable. Yeah, that's so good. So are you still finding now as people are coming to you by referral or word of mouth, uh, what are you finding right now is the attraction point? Is it is it more the, the job training program or the type of work you're doing? Is it possible to take a pulse on what's happening at this minute? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to say, you know. I think I it's hard it's hard to pull it all apart, I think. Because uh, the truth is, like, we are very much all of those, and we don't exist. Those things don't exist in vacuums. And so, you know, I'm always curious to hear from our customers. I think a lot of them are driven by the simple fact that they need a job done, and they need to find somebody to help them do it. And uh, you know, our mission can sometimes be that cherry on top that kind of helps them say like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm really, I'm going to follow up with these guys and reach out to them. Um, but it's, it, it is typically, I think, just a kind of a market need that we exist to fill is that, you know, if somebody has a product and it needs to be sewn, then they need somebody to do that. And we're, we're happy to be the ones to do that. And if they can tell a, a little bit more interesting story as a business because of our relationship, then we're really happy for that too. That's powerful. I feel like that's, that's the truth that I keep landing on is, like, you still got to fill a need, do it really well. There's always that missional story around it that I think just elevates the attraction of your business, but you still got to yep. get it done. Um, on yeah. that note, you know, when so I would loosely, you know, place you guys, of course, in the manufacturing uh, segment mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. One of the most challenging things, I think, when you're in uh, somewhere in the chain of, of manufacturing is, how do you decide what's your minimum type job? I know some folks we talk to are saying, well, I need to get out about this amount of dollars in per job. Some take a test run of the potential client and figure out and custom price it. What have you found is the best to setting your your minimum? Because really you're providing access to others to get on their feet, especially if they've got a small run or a pilot project. That is very mm-hmm. difficult to find manufacturing support for it. So how are yeah. you setting like minimum floors to protect yourself and pricing it enough so that if you didn't, you know, so you, so accidents can happen, errors can happen, and you're still okay. Right. 
Right. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And it's, we live in this tension. I think it's similar to kind of like the mission business tension is just like, it's so fun. And we so love like working with startups and small runs, like just cause it's always so interesting, but it's so hard to make that work from a financial perspective because it just requires so much overhead to start something. And so it's definitely a balance. And I mean, we, so we will do like if we're bringing in a new customer and they're kind of in the startup phase, we're going to definitely do a sample run. Um, and so that's going to help us kind of make sure that we can get the quality down make sure that they're happy with it. It'll allow us to understand what that pricing looks like and kind of what the full scope of the project is. And from there we can kind of pitch pricing and, we used to not have any minimums and I think that kind of goes back to the confidence thing in, in yourself. And, you know, we would basically take any job that came our way because we needed it, but we've gotten to the point where those little jobs, they are hard. We really like them, but they are definitely harder to manage. And so we have kind of like a under 50 quantity rate and an over 50. So it's still, you know, I mean, very low bar in terms of what you'll see in a lot of manufacturing. Um, but we have built in a little bit of a minimum there just because it, it just requires a lot more to run that stuff. Andy, while we're right there at that point, looking at like low minimums and that, how do you set the boundary for yourself and your team that you don't try to solve it? So let's say it's not a fit. Let's say it's uh, a run of 10 items and it really is not cost effective for the entrepreneur, you guys to handle it. How do you set the boundary where you don't go off and try to solve it and get them somewhere else? I mean, so many of us social entrepreneurs will be like, okay, I can't do it, but let me see if I can connect you with so-and-so. We're such a giving community. How do you set those boundaries and not sort of stay in that end of the pool when you shouldn't? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, sometimes it's even just like, geez, this is a cool thing, but I don't see any viable path for this product, you know, like with us or anyone and so, I mean, we try to be just as honest as possible, and it's surprisingly hard to say no. I mean, we've been learning how to say no better um, in, in, a, in a way that's helpful and constructive for us and for the customer. But, you know, the, the truth is if you have a product that's not super viable and you've been hearing no, then you're going to be really persistent because you probably believe in your products. And so... You know, it can be really hard as a manufacturer. It's like, man, this person really wants us to make their thing. Like, we're kind of honored. We should do it. Uh, but then just being able to have some tools in place that be like, well, hey, this is what it takes us. And if we can't hit this, then we just can't do it. You know, like, even though it seems cool and we really like it, we like the person, we really want to do it. But, you know, it's our goal as a social enterprise is, um, you know, to to be financially viable. And so we've had to learn kind of how to do that and how to manage that and what that looks like. And that's certainly an evolving process. Yeah. But you guys have such a different feel right now, even from a year ago. I just, oh, yeah. The word I keep feeling is strength. You guys have so strengthened from a year ago. I, And it just takes a minute of trial and error and working with customers yep. to have that kind of strength. I love that word of confidence because I, I can feel um, so much more muscle and foundation right now <laughs> yeah. about your organization. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. I mean, we're, we are 
definitely just further along and that comes with experience and we've been so fortunate to have the support of a lot of people in our local community here and then just kind of the national social enterprise community i mean it's really been transformative for us as an organization to be able to learn from so many people about how to do what we're doing and and just the support we've received has been tremendous and i I think it does show you know our programming you know to get away from like the production side of thing the way that we support people now is dramatically different than it was a year ago and completely for the better i mean i'm so proud of the program that we have and the way that we support our employees and it's just developed a lot too but i mean it's just taking time and trial and error and experience on that front as well would you be willing to share maybe one or two of those changes or differences that you're doing now that yeah yeah i mean our our heart has always been good you know we've always desired to serve people well but I think in the last year, what we've been able to develop is an actual uh, systematic way of doing that. And so we have kind of a suite of uh, assessments and evaluations and tools that we're using, you know, and, and we've always wanted to maintain kind of the personal touch because obviously we're working with people and everyone is very unique in, in what they need. But coming around with some some tools that allow you know, a social worker to engage with somebody and be able to kind of establish a baseline and understand what someone's needs might be and how we can best support those needs. Um, kind of objectifying some of that information to a degree has allowed us to be so much more effective and to communicate so much better with our staff and address kind of like where are those real pain points that we can make a difference in their lives. And so I think it felt um, a little unnatural, honestly, to try and like turn uh, these, you know, like uh, very subjective things, people, into data. Um, but doing so has allowed us to, to do what we do so much better. And we deliver it, obviously, in a very personal way. And so I think just the, the intentionality behind what we're doing has just grown so much, and the, the impact has been really significant. Wow, uh, that's exciting. I think sometimes um, I hear what you're saying. I, I resist that, too, about saying, oh, gosh, you know, this business or this group of people falls into this sort of data output. But a truth that I've learned recently is that if I collect enough data on a project or a group, I can plug that into a larger, broader um, ecosystem, and I can access learning that's really specific to them and access mm-hmm. advice for them because other people have studied other parts of it. And there might be some formulas I can plug in that data that others have studied and gone before and really spent a lot of time and effort trying to understand how different things relate. And, uh, yeah, it's not a perfect science because we're <laughs> we're created so uniquely, but boy, right. fast track it a little bit, I think. Yeah. Help, help it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to put people in a box, right. but, you know, the alternative is just like shooting from the hip and starting from square one every time, and that's not effective either. Yeah. So, been been growing there with uh, you know again lots of support and it's just been it's been really exciting to watch that develop and see see it really have a, a significant impact in people's lives which is what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. And what's uh, shifting gears here as you kind of 
you know, you're you're such a visionary here as you think forward and you let yourself dream. What are some things that like get you really excited that you see maybe you're about to implement or you dream about as a possibility? So that was that joy point that you're like, ah, that would be really cool if that happened. Yeah, no, I think there's a couple things, you know, like for us, our model has been very behind the scenes contract, um, but we are just now starting to kind of launch our own product line, which is really exciting. So we've de- developed some core competencies and some good skills in certain areas. And so we're launching some stuff out of, you know, the sewing and the woodworking and using some of the laser engraving and, and using those to create some stuff. So we're we're now selling um, some really cool cutting boards and coaster sets uh, made out of wood. Uh, we're at, we actually developed a line of tables, so dining room, uh, coffee, and end tables, and then um, some bags. You know, we've been doing some upcycled bags in the sew shop, but we're also doing some Cordura-type stuff now and more kind of new materials. Um, and so we're really excited about what opportunities that could present for us and new relationships that we would be able to explore having a little bit more control over some of our activities and products. Um, So that's really exciting. And then, you know, going really big, my goal kind of with this whole thing from the beginning has been, you know, what does it look like to figure this out? Like how can we figure this model out? And then what does it look like to take it somewhere else? You know, and I think of Detroit, honestly, as just a very natural place where the model would play so well because, and like you said, manufacturing is so big in a place like Detroit. And so, you know, if we could take the model and plug in some new local partners, could you just do the same thing over again? And so a big part about what we're trying to do is figure out how to do what we do well, do it efficiently, write it all down, and then explore how could we go somewhere else, you know. And so I think we we don't necessarily want to have this, like, huge sprawling footprint in Denver, but we would much rather kind of have a, a smaller, more manageable operation here and then look at partnerships kind of around the country. That's exciting. I, of course, have always been, since I came across your organization, have been thinking about how could it come to the Detroit area and there's other under-resourced communities that we that are manufacturing-centered that oh, yeah. the model would be powerful. And I'd love to talk to you offline about that because – um, there's some movement in that area, and everybody doesn't want to recreate the wheel. Everyone, especially the potential funders, are looking for ways to copy things that somebody who's gone before and worked out some of the some of the junk. Quite frankly, you know, yeah, some of the, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's huge that's what value. we're doing for sure. That's it. Huge and I mean, value, it's though. so transferable. You know, I mean, the same principles apply. It doesn't matter if you're in Denver or Detroit or. LA or wherever, you know, same same general concept. But I think it really is a scalable and transferable model, and that would be kind of the long-term, you know, big-picture vision of what we can do with this thing. Yeah, that's so exciting. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, because I want to keep this an ongoing, uh, almost (laughs) audio documentary of what you guys are doing. Is there anything yeah. you'd like to um, just kind of share with the listeners right now? We thank thank our fans for the loyalty, but we're in more than a hundred countries now listening to us, and cool. um, we know that you were a very popular guest, and there was a lot of inspirational 
uh, commentary we got about what you were doing. So no pressure, cool. but is there anything you <laughs> share with anybody? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a listener as well, and I sure appreciate listening to what everyone else is up to, um, to it. I really enjoy uh, what you're doing here. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I, I, you know, I haven't listened to the first one in, in a long time, and so I cannot remember if I had any advice on that that one. And so forgive me if I give the exact same advice, but I think something that's just been so foundational to us as we've grown has been just asking, not asking the question of what can we do, and you know what can we kind of muster up within ourselves, but who can we collaborate with? Like who can make us stronger? What partnerships can we forge? And and I think our model is obviously built on this idea of the the community and what can we do together. And so as a, a social enterprise, I think it's it's hard if you attempt to exist in a vacuum or on an island. And to the to the degree possible, I think it's just always wise to ask, you know, who can I partner with? Uh who who can I work with to where we both can make each other stronger? And, you know, I mean I think if you look at our our pending kind of deal we're doing with course tech it's just it's just this very mutual thing and we're really unbalanced in terms of size obviously but you know we are both bringing something to the table that the other party really wants and I, we're both going to be able to do our our work better because of it and so i mean that's just kind of my standard advice is <laughs> look for look for the partnership opportunities and ways to collaborate because you'll both be better for it yeah, I think I, I'm so glad you brought that up, and I don't think you said that a lot of times. So I'm so glad you okay, did. Okay, good. <laughs> I think good. I think sometimes uh, there's a fear. I, I hear people when we suggest, you know, those guys might be doing that. There's sometimes I feel like people resist it. There's a fear that they're going to have to change themselves uh, to mm-hmm. fit the other potential partner, or and I just all along this line, I do want to encourage listeners to. You don't have to adapt and change what you're doing to work with another partner. It's a mutual learning, and you do have the right to say, hey, gosh, I, that fits for me and that doesn't. Just because you start mm-hmm. to collaborate with someone doesn't mean you have to change to meet them. You might want to oh, because yeah. you might learn it, but um, sometimes it's exactly what you're doing and just doing it from a different angle or a different lens. But most of the time, if I could encourage most of the listeners, most of the time collaboration feeds ideas under the premise that two heads are better than one, you know, you mm-hmm. just get more thought mm-hmm. power there. And oh, yeah, just the creativity that comes out of that and the impact it can have on both of you, you know, and I don't think you should be so locked into what you're doing to say we're not willing to do this differently. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. There's always an opportunity to get better and to think outside the box and and innovate, and that that's going to come with outside input and a new you know set of eyes and just kicking ideas around that's so good well how do they reach you let's give them your social media and website again oh yeah we're on uh you know facebook instagram twitter all that just my life works out and then uh, my org is the website and uh if anyone wants to reach out our email is just hello at milehighworkshop.org um, so, yeah, follow us, stay in touch, reach out. I mean, we're always willing to, to support good stuff. Uh, and if Andy, anyone wants to collaborate, call us. <laughs> uh, so good. Thank you, Andy. Oh, my goodness. So much good stuff in that conversation with Andy. Thank you, Andy. You are really paving the way for so many 
If any of you travel to Denver, be sure to check out their shop. All right, time for our closing song. Now this artist has been shared with us from our friends at Assemble Sound in Detroit. Please meet Jay Norm in his song titled, If Hearts Had Ears. <laughs> Until next time, keep those bonfires burning. <laughs>